Let's have a party Albany. Let's have a big bash Albany. Let's celebrate now Albany. Another scandal Albany. That's what your vote is gonna get. Hey town, you ain't seen nothing best. We're going all the way in the Okay, I am your host, Dan Platt. This is What's Left in Albany, the kind of just general talk and, you know, just talk and news program with your host, Dan Platt, friendly neighborhood communist, um, Green Party member and man about town, but also coordinator of the station, um, of this station that you're listening to, Community Radio. So generally, I will be having more guests, as I've kind of stated, and one of them is here in the, um, in the studio with me, Janet. Hi, say hi, Janet. Hi, everybody. Hi. She's a member. uh, She's a resident of the Center Square neighborhood and generally bump into her um, basically while I'm strolling about and being myself, I suppose, uh, doing my routine on Saturday. And uh, and I just bumped into her enough to basically say, you know what? You're interesting. You have a lot to say and you've been involved with a lot of things. Right. So let's (laughs) let's just Joe Rogan it up. I'm just being a Janet about town. Excellent. We're totally winging it. No scripts. No, barely any. Some prep as far as our lives or preparation. Janet, we'll start the first half of the show with the usual kind of interview stuff. Kind of give your background um, as succinctly or however you like. Simply end with a kind of explanation of why you're a resident of Albany in the first place. Cool. Cool question. Uh, I'm not from here. I up in Philadelphia. I lived many places, mostly very, very large cities. Don't be afraid to talk louder. Oh, yeah, I can talk louder. I live in very large cities like um, Hong Kong and Shanghai um, and some smaller cities like Washington, D.C. and Philadelphia. Before I came to Albany, I took a job at RPI in 2003 because I was sitting in Shanghai and my husband had just left me and I had two kids, aged nine and four, and I thought, you know what? So you had a first husband. I had a first husband. Yes, I, I married a uh, I married a man in China and lived uh, there with him in China for quite a long time. I did lots of business in China. Um, what brought you to China from Philadelphia? Um, an undergraduate degree in Chinese history from the University of Pennsylvania, which is what I did. Um, with my four years of undergraduate, when I decided I really didn't want to get a degree from the Wharton School, which is where I applied, but uh, ended up with a degree in Chinese history as well, which made all of my classmates um, declare me completely insane. Uh, you can't make 19- money in history. <laughs> in 1985, to get it, uh-huh. 1982, three, four, to be studying China was quite unheard of. And May I say your motivation was, well, you just want to know what's going on. But what was your motivation? 
you know, since this is what's left in Albany, mm-hmm. I'll just say I my father was a socialist and I was raised on Mother Jones and uh, all sorts of um, the magazine. Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just clarifying. And uh, I I thought it would be you know I, I came of age in high school in the Reagan years um, didn't feel something felt um, very sus to me about the way the society was changing and the economy the role of the economy and the and um, I, I wanted to go live in a socialist country. I wanted to, and and at that point in time, you know, this was the this was the late seventies, early eighties. So the most have, developed. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, and China compared to, truly was. Compared I mean, to Cuba. I, I, I arrived there, and they, you know, there was no retail, mm. there was no distribution, there was no private property. Mm. Um, so I did get to live for quite a while um, while China transitioned from that really centrally planned economy and social state into, you know, as as, as hyper uh, capitalistic as any society can be. Uh, it was a strange thing. What's your general impression of the, not just the transition, but your time bef- pre-Dangism, which represents the transition Dang? By the time I got there, it was already done. But um, oh, okay. Uh, but I did marry a Chinese man who um, came from a family of uh, Communist Party officials, and they were Communist Party members before the revolution. So they had a lot of they were legacy. things to. Yeah, they had a lot they of weren't just joiners before Deng, you know, before Deng Xiaoping. Mm-hmm. Um, when I arrived, it was already Deng Xiaoping. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have gotten a visa. You know, mm-hmm. China, China was closed. But I, I would say the early years of. Um, you know, when I lived there, when, when people did have very little uh, cash income, mm-hmm. um, there was no retail. Yeah. Uh, you don't need the cash because there, it's... Were, there were ration tickets. Yeah. You know, that's mm-hmm. when I started to carry my own chopsticks and bowl and it's a little... everywhere. I see. And yeah. Rode a bicycle so you, you have that. You're, you have a little bit of that moneyless culture. Yeah. And so on. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, there were there were things that people um, complained about. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I don't want to make light of the fact that you know, there were shortages of things, but mm-hmm. um, there was a general, there was a general, um, a, there was a tremendous warmth in society. There was a tremendous closeness. Um, people were uh, very kind. They were very open. Uh, they, you know, they, it was a time of great. The, the early '80s and into the mid '80s in China was a time of great hope mm-hmm. and um, really economic kind of. St- stability. There was a stabilization of the economy at that time, and mm. um, it was kind of a lovely. It was Recovering a lovely from the unstable the 60s and yeah, so. and even the 70s. I mean, there were um, mm-hmm. the uh, the man I married uh, had a father who had been to re-education camp. Um, he had uh, sisters who were red guards. He was sent off to the military during the Cultural Revolution. I don't want to yes. make light of any of these things. Yes. Um, but I I will say that the China I lived in in the in the 80s before it. Before WTO, actually, before 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 NAFTA, uh-huh. before the most before the free trade agreements um, that really you know ushered in globalization, that that was a China that was much more socialist in its mm-hmm. values and conduct and principles and you know look and feel and the and the, but, and the formation of the economy like, right because yeah, it, it was centrally planned yeah more so but if even you know. China maintained its characteristic as a nation with a growing GDP, where the largest component of GDP was investment, mm-hmm. rather than which is the point of for, state for a very long time. Which is the uh, advantage of this, the state capitalism that any production is going back into national investment. So I learned a lot 
living in a place for and and working there in like I got to work in a lot of different industries. I got to be kind mm-hmm. of the right hand person to whatever executive got sent over from whatever country to start a business in China. Speaking you know. English, you know. <laughs> mm, so I got involved in a lot of things. I got to observe a lot. And one of the things that I enjoyed tremendously about when you asked me what it was like living uh, in China earlier is in an economy with what, which did invest. They invested in infrastructure. They invested in people. Mm-hmm. They invested in training. They invested yeah. in, you know, they did That's what socialist in. governments usually do. Yeah, um, and they weren't perfect. I mean, they, mm-hmm. they, they screwed up the, a lot of social welfare systems, and they, you mm-hmm. know, they didn't do a very good job with health care and all of that. But they did invest in people, and it was remarkable to see how quickly an economy can grow. Yeah, not to make excuses, but it's like we don't have the capital to build hospitals, so we just have to, like, do it childly. And now we can build hospitals in a day. So, But, but that's the difference of 50 years. Well, they, I mean, the, the Chinese have been um, horrific about uh, depressing the wages of yeah. physicians and teachers. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're, 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 they're so, well, it is a... Not to mention explosion of alienation. In name a communist country, they're, the unions are, well, you know, they're, they're not... They're, mm-hmm. not, they're, not, they're, not, they're not independent unions. And anyway, yeah, anyway, I I'm ended aware. up in Albany because I got this phone call and somebody said, Do you, you know, I, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the dean of the business school at RPI. Have you ever been to Albany? And I went, oh, yeah, when I was like nine on a family trip. <laughs> went to the, you know, uh, went to Storytown or Frontiertown, whatever. Yeah. Um, from Philly. And uh, For I, context, I for anyone under 60, uh, that's the, uh, the great escape under Six Flags now. That's what it used to be. That's why there's that um, storybook village, little houses, things on the side. It was creepy. That's what's left even of it. Then. It's creepy now. It's really oh, crazy. I loved it as a kid, though. Did you? I don't think creepy. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, well, you were, you were, I'm a lot older than you, so uh-huh. when I was young, yeah, anyway. Maybe it was unique for amusement park. So I took a job at RPI, basically, and I moved here with my kids in 2003, mm-hmm. and I did not know a soul. And I continued to really not know a soul for, for quite a while. This is not the friendliest town in the world. Uh-huh. But, um, I've been told. I do appreciate I do appreciate. I try to. I about. try to counter that by being very friendly. Here, here. <laughs> don't car. Don't curse the dark. Light yes. candle. Mm, there you go. Uh, continue. Yeah. So here I am in Albany. Uh, I've been here almost twenty years now. I did mm-hmm. go back to China in 2014, 2015. Right. And you continued your um, business con. Um, I continued working with China until so until March of this year. Right. So forty, uh, forty some year career, great. and and now that's that's I think we can and say here that's you have over. stayed. I, I think we can say that's and over. you haven't had a particular good reason to leave, right? I have that... a good reason to stay now. I have a husband who I really really like, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm actually quite committed to the city of Albany now. Mm-hmm. I, I put down roots here. My my son is still here. You know, the one who is nine. So I, I I'm uh, developing some fondness for it after twenty years. You also live in the densest part of the region, so. Yeah, that is really the critical thing. I, do, I don't think I would still be in this region if I did not live in, in Center Square, if I did not live in a place. I'm, I'm very, very urban. I'd like to be able to walk everywhere. It's interesting. I, I think a, that could be a pattern in the people I know. People who are renting in the uptown neighborhoods are somewhat always thinking about going to a larger city because there's a better scene there of some type. Maybe more opportunity, whatever. And people who live in or around Center Square or Delaware Avenue neighborhood, things that they're, they're actual neighborhoods, I suppose, is the difference. They 
are actually neighborhoods with community orgs of a type um, to some extent. And Elmer Hill maybe could be included in this to some extent too. They're not interested in leaving. Or they came here from other places and were drawn here. But, uh, you know, it's not the cheapest parts of town, though Delaware Ave is actually quite mixed, very mixed. And, uh, and of course, surrounding neighborhood, downtown neighborhoods are, of course, totally mixed back, but also, you know, what they are. So, okay, next. I also kind of like how, yeah. how sort of, uh, how old it is. You know, it is very old. It's, it's oldest it's city old. in America. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm from Philly, so I mean, I probably said that five times in this no. interview. Yeah, just twice. Obnoxious of me, but you know, I do I do love that city very very much, and it is it mm-hmm. is you know it feels, you know, the the, the infrastructure has that quality. Of gravity Did you grow up in the well. inner sections of Philly, or were like what what kind of section of Philly were you in? I grew up. Um, I, I had relatives who were in South Philly. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was the Italian half of my family. They were Sicilians, and mm-hmm. they lived in Norristown, which was kind of like water bleat. Okay. Except everybody spoke Sicilian. Nice. <laughs> they spoke Shaki. They were from Shaka. Hmm? Um, Shaka? Shaka. They were from Shaka. So. Oh, the, the town name. The town in Sicily. Okay. So um, Norristown, yeah, which is kind of like a, a, a very dense. I guess uh, I don't know area. my southern Italian geography like I think I do. Feel it's like just a like little that. port in Sicily. Right, yeah. The little that's the little towns that I don't know. Yeah. It's a port. And uh um, I can name Bari and you know and, and uh Palo Dude, Vino. I've never been. This is all I know. That the closest I've been to Sicily is Norristown. But I did uh, go to grow up in a suburb mostly called Ambler or Bluebell. Okay, there's the answer. Like IBM Merck little company towns. Company t- anyway, okay. Yeah, but in, in you know, like two hundred year old houses. So Oh, okay. Nice. So still very an old neighborhood. Very old. Wait, so it was like a transit suburb, but 200 years old? No, I mean... That the, doesn't make sense. Well, it was... It was or are you saying it was a century old, so at least it was pre-modern? I, I think if you go if you go to um, the northwest, you know, the outlying parts of, of Philadelphia, uh-huh. there were the uh, town that I... Oh, oh, I like, see. There were absorbed towns that were outside, so they are were, 200 years old. Yes, but they, they were, were okay. They were, okay, I get that. They were landowners who were yes. um, allowing George Washington to, be, you know, stay on their estates. Yeah, so he he slept everywhere. Yeah. yeah, there was a tavern across the street from my house, which was, you know, opened in 1682 or something like that. So, sure. Right. Hey, that's that's when cool. Albany was made charter of the city. Albany's Albany's got that old going for it too, and yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things I really glommed onto it here is all the layers. Oh yes, many many layers. Like an onion, you got to peel them back. And that is one of the purposes of this show, slowly peel back layers. Oh, nice segue. Not really a segue. But, well, first I want to, I want to give my little geography quiz story where it went. And so I was, I was working the table at Occupy Wall Street. We had some German tourists come by. And I'm just showing up my geography knowledge. Um, and they're like, you know, and I'm asking them, oh, where are you from in Germany? And, you know, it's like, and I, and I don't, I forget if I ask, like, oh, are you from Berlin or not? You know, because that's the usual place. But of course they, but they say like, oh no, no, we're not from Berlin. You, you know, we're not from a you know, city you know. And I go like, oh, well, try me. You know, like, are you from Frankfurt? And I'm just naming the northern European, German cities because maybe subconsciously their accent or whatever. But I say uh, Hamburg, uh, Frankfurt, Cologne, and they go, and they just perk up. Cologne, we're from Cologne. Like they're so surprised. I'm like, well, you do have the one of the largest cathedrals in Europe, <laughs> but that's the architecture nerd speaking. 
I, I hope to find out more about the architectural history of Albany. It's really been intriguing me lately, so maybe someday you can. It's weird. Me, it's weird that I'm. Archival matter. Oh or, no. The the man you want to speak to is John Wilcott, but uh, there's obviously other people as well. I mean, people of the historical foundation. My next question, or rather, just topic, is simply: What are you working on? What projects do you have? Especially now that you're semi-slash-retired? or I, I guess I was planning on being semi-retired, but yes. certain things... You never really want to give up what you're good at or what you like doing, right? But anyway, carry on. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, do have, I do have a mission that I'm carrying right now, and I wasn't quite planning to take up the mission now. In fact, I've been putting off this mission for 29 years. I bought the life's work of a folk artist from uh, a cave-dwelling culture in northwest China. My first husband was from this cave-dwelling culture as well. And Shouldn't it belong in a Chinese museum? May I ask I, the colonialist I think the originals, question? the originals need to go back to China, uh-huh. quite honestly. They're 250 works. They're encyclopedic, and she is a known master of the form. They were, they were, they were, they were already here in the states. Oh no, or I was, I was in China. You acquired when them. I, I, I had been, I knew her for some time. I mm-hmm. purchased her works as gifts, um, and I was living in Xi'an. I was going. My, my oh, I'm sorry. I need, I need to clarify. So these are recently created works of folk art, or are they? These, yeah. She was active. She was not born archaeological. In 1920. She was born in 1920, so she okay. made her works in the uh, 30s through okay. the the late 1990s. Modern, modernly produced. Okay. I just but want to clarify. From... You're not talking about archaeological no. uh, pieces. You mentioned cave dwelling culture. Sorry. Well, yeah. They, 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 there's, it's still a cave dwelling culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and has been since the Neolithic, which is kind of what's interesting about this folk art is that the women of this uh, of this region have been making this art since they had paper and scissors. Which, since mm-hmm. it's China, that was you know about two hundred, the year two hundred and something. Mm-hmm. So there's repertoire that's been passed down, and there are really messages of resilience about. You know, courage. What is the and form of the art? So you mentioned paper. paper cuts, so it's just yeah. paper cuts? Yeah, just paper cut out. And um, I have the 250 originals, which she deemed to be her life's work. I purchased them from her as so what's the part mi- of investment right. in publishing. The, the Ministry of Culture wanted to publish a book mm-hmm. catalog of her works, and I had the money to fund that, but I also acquired her works. And I brought them back and promised to bring them to the world, and here it is 30 years later. So this is my oh, mission. So years ago, and so the mission is to do what? To do what? Take her work to take them to on tour. Take them, take bring them to the people of America in as in as many ways as I can. They are mess- as I said, they're about they're about non judgment. They're about the balance of yin and yang. They're about courage. They're about forbearance, and they're just beautiful. They're 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 she's she's telling. All of the stories and all of the legends and all of the history of China through various themes and collections. Uh, she tells us about Taoism. She tells us about Confucianism. She tells us about Buddhism. She tells us about landscapes, history, heroes, you know, the great women warriors of China. All of these things are in her work, and they're just really, they're just stunning. A diverse set of subjects. Yeah, it's, in, it's you know, encyclopedic. Well, the, the, the diversity of China itself. Except for it, this, it's not that diverse in, in terms of this culture is 
sort of the cradle of Han Chinese civilization. It is part of Han, not separate. It is the Han. I guess that was my next thought. The of Han culture is this uh these neolithic villages in the upper reaches of the of the yellow river mm-hmm, right. and so what she's cataloging in her work is what are the cornerstones of han culture she's got quite a lot of work about the yellow emperor the uh so-called first ancestor uh because her town is where that man was buried her, her town mm-hmm. is the uh, mausoleum of the yellow emperor so this, all of this Taoism and all of this. Um, so it's already a tourist destination, correct? I don't, I, I don't think very many. Well, domestically, yeah, and certainly. I assume yes, certainly the political leaders of China all go there. Xi Jinping has mm-hmm. been there many, many times. Xi Jinping actually lived in a cave, seven miles away from her village for seven years. Mm-hmm. So these cave villages are not quite as bizarre as we would think. Are they because, UNESCO heritage site at all? I do not know. It's quite. It's possible. Sounds it's like possible. it could be on the list. There was recently a very, very, very large-scale regenerative agriculture project done to put green and water back into these. Uh, it's called the Yellow Earth, the Less Hills. They're they're mm-hmm. they're very they're very very arid. There's no water. I'm there. sure. Yeah, yeah. The area is probably pretty deprived slash yeah. overused. Seven thousand over years millennia. of agriculture. Yeah. Yes. But but anyway, yeah. It's uh. So I'm trying. Take to a lot of fertilizer. To, you know, get get that back. And this, I mean, this is a woman who, you know, her works were given estate gifts, but she's also someone who has identified her whole life and, in fact, through her entire lineage as a poor person. Hmm. This is, is, you know, and and a poor peasant, a subsistence farmer. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, But but with a life that's rich in spirit and Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of generosity of spirit, a lot of... uh, a lot of passion for the so just, beauty of nature. Just to give you some context, I'm not completely at zero. I took a modern China class as part of my history minor, which covered... Was that an easy A for you, let's be honest? I suppose. I had a very good professor. Um, like yourself, she lived in China for a good decade. The original professor was someone who was Chinese, and um, Chinese citizen rather, and took part in the Tiananmen Square event. But he couldn't... Do, do that you can make it that semester i guess so what was her last name her first name was barbara but her speciality was japan and korea so uh but anyway she was like so i'm not really as good as him but like she was still pretty impressive in my eyes but anyway which covered um chinese history from british appearing to um and of course spending quite a lot of time on the the revolution and the interwar years you could say and nasty, we also watched nasty times. We watched that, that multiple in China was We watched multiple movies. So One bad. was called Life. Oh, yes. And the Hua, other Hua Jia, and, yeah. Yes. And the other one was um The Last Emperor. Mm. A nice movie too. Mm-hmm. And then we were assigned she would assign novels. Not just novels, but autobiographical uh, autobiographical novels, so to speak, or or such. One was called The Dragon's Village, which was about a post-revolution student being sent to the countryside to organize town, carry out the land reform, and, and so on. And it ends with her basically handing out the deeds to the new, the, the peasantry who now have land for the first time in their, you know, their families' lives, even after like various unsanctioned violence or whatever, but or almost state sanctioned, almost sanctioned. There, there, like, there yeah, go ahead, take take the rich peasant can who survived. Huh? There were not that many landlords who survived. Correct. Land reform. Not not uh, 
not glancing over that. Uh, but anyway. Um, Although the grandfather yes. of the man I married was one of them, I just want to point that out. Mm-hmm. They were landlords. They had nine caves. Oh, they had nine caves. Yes. So they were, from, yes. they were from that town. Yeah. Yeah, well, a couple of villages over. Also and these, caves. Ta- these caves themselves are very well-crafted um, houses. Some mansion-like is what you're getting at? Oh, no, no, no I, wouldn't, oh. I would not say mansion-like. But they are comfortable. Right. Uh, the better ones are quite large, quite spacious, and, you know, they've been, and the, the walls are pounded very smooth. Right, of and, course. Um, They're all orthogonal. <laughs> you could tell. Yeah, or thank you, architect. Thank you. Orthogonal. Uh, what smooth, smooth it? works too. What, what would you call it as an architectural feature when there's a heating platform that runs through the length of the house and underneath it are charcoal braziers so that... So well, there's, there's several names, like Roman baths had a certain name, but um, we basically just call that underfloor heating. Well, they call it a kong, and they have them in yes. Korea as well, and they're sort of raised level. Yes. They're not they're not underfloor, but people spend their whole winters hanging out. On There's those. a lot of good designers that are kind of working that way when it comes to um, heating where you run the your hot water pipes in the floor. Oh no, sorry, it's called radiant heating. Yes. Floor radiant heating because the floor the the floor you, you run the pipes through the floor like like the uh, say the sidewalks. Mm-hmm. Where you know now that snow melts because mm-hmm. it's got hot water piping under it. Yes, yeah, and it bad, radiates out with, of the floor. Except for with charcoal, except with charcoal and bricks. Mm-hmm. So they're, I mean, they're not, they're not, they're not horrible. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're smooth, they're dry, they're, yeah. they're, they can be kept, they're clean, they're warm, but they, you know, they don't. They, there's only one wall that's open to the outside, so. It's a little dark on the inside. Well, a certain certain type of uh, let's see, the, the 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 ideal home is like the ideal kind of cave where you are surrounded on at least two sides, but three. You are looking out, and you have a vista view. You can look out, and you see like the valley before you. And it's and it's dry and closed. So it's like those two things kind of make a good view or a good living room to be able to look out, to have at least one big window to look out, and be have at least two firm walls behind you. And open concept houses don't do this a lot, you know, and that's why maybe people feel alienated in them or they don't feel quite safe or a little paranoid. It's like something could be behind me and I don't know because. <laughs> um, and the same goes for office design, that a, d- a good desk will have at least two walls on one side. You'll have at least a co- one coworker who's within your peripheral vision on your side, but then you have a window in front of you. Can you just get a mannequin if you can't get anyone to show up? Uh, maybe. Uh, make your own little you know, Wilson. The Japanese learn to have these audio tapes of the sounds of productivity. So even when you're in the office alone, oh, you can still hear other people. Anyway, these, these caves brings me to this yes. project I, I, I read. I know we're going quite off, off, but like, so yeah, so the, uh, let's get circle back to the, the mission of you wanted to go on tour. My follow-up to that was, uh, what is your method of, of spreading this art to the American public? How do you bring it out? Well, at the moment, I'm about two months into figuring that out uh-huh. since, all the rest of my careers didn't didn't go so well in 2022. All my other projects seem to be running into problems. So, well, why don't you list them out and uh, 
if it's not too embarrassing, but we want to be able to learn from each other's, uh, cause no such thing as failure. Failure is part of the capitalist process. Oh, yes. Yes. Or failure of values. It's to embrace it, to not see it as a negative thing. And of course, the failure doesn't really exist because life is simply a matter of doing things. We have value. Yes, we're here. We're here to give what we have to give. And one of the things that I was here to give. Drop my, that smarmy tone, will you? It was my expertise as a cross-border clean tech commercialization person um, because I was working in for the past couple of years until March of this year uh, as the North American director for the energy projects at this Beijing-based clean tech commercialization fund. And we were, yeah, I was working on clean tech commercialization, which there's absolutely no market for it all anymore. So that, that you know, my 40-year career with China just ended when Putin invaded well, Ukraine. Wait, wait, hold, so hold, hold on. So um, clean tech, well, say, say the clean phrase Clean tech again. commercialization. So, so what does that entail, really, and why is there no market for it now? Well, the reason commercialization is when you take a early-stage technology uh-huh. and you build it up to scale. Okay. And that's Which is what usually the Chinese the big... are really, really good at because they uh-huh. have engineers and facilities the and land and, and subsidies the... and, you know, loans and everything. You know, they will mm-hmm. build a college. They will build a university around whatever you need to do. Just this one, this yeah. one emerging tech. So um, if you have a really promising technology that comes out of early science in the United States, typically the United States is not very good at commercializing. They let their – they don't have enough engineers and because it's a market economy – no one wants to take the risk of the time mm-hmm. to take an, uh, an early yeah. technology into it. And there just really aren't enough scientists. Otherwise, it's up to the military, but if it doesn't have a military application, maybe. Yeah, and in China, they don't have that problem because they have a five-year plan, and they say, mm-hmm. we are going to develop wind turbines, or we are going yes. to develop LEDs, or we are going to break the cost barriers. And even if there's solar, five just failing techs, then we'll have three that are great. And we're going to throw the full resources of the state behind it, so mm-hmm. it's going to happen. So what the theory is, is that you take, you leverage the scale and speed of the Chinese economic ecosystem Mm -hmm. to take a promising technology and bring it to a place where it's affordable for everybody. So like heat pumps Uh or hydrogen from sewage, lithium lithium recovery, lithium recovery and mineral recovery from um, batteries. So sodium batteries, these are the kinds of things that I was working on getting technology out of the rest of the world and introduced into some system where it could be commercialized really quickly and uh, put into practice. But China doing like the the capital investment and the work. Yeah, Chinese have the money, they have the land, they have the engineers. (laughs) Basically, it's... Here's a very large upfront payment for yes. – basically, this deal doesn't exist anymore because uh-huh. uh, you are, no technology is moving between the U.S. and China. Yes. Um, very, very little. For many reasons. Yeah, for many, many, many reasons. And um, it's, 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 all, it's all fine. You know, it's, it's, it is what it is. But um, so I, re- I remember ended. back in college, I had um, – I don't know if it was the dean or some professor or just somebody was around – at a lecture, and they were talking about, to other professors, I suppose, just like, I have friends in China, and they're asking, and this is basically just with the Tea Party, this is like 2010, and it's like, they're concerned, they're like, what's going on with you guys? And that was back in 2010! Wow. And, uh, yeah, so, (laughs) it's gotten a lot crazier since then. 
but again, that's just that that's this the shift to the multipolar world. Were the aging out? Were they? Were the oh, let's see, were the the empire that didn't want to be one, but that's it's just the story of America. Both constantly not wanting to be an empire, but always wanting to be one anyway. And but us going crazy because we're not like living up to the potential of being the best of the world and so on. But whatever. What I've I've done shows on multiple on the multipolar world before, um, at least when I do uh, the geopolitics. So because uh, it's a, it's a, to me it's the only way of understanding what's going on is the shift of the multipolar. The brick, as it's called, but it's bricks plural, but it's, you know, brick is the acronym Brazil, India, China, Russia. Yeah, Brazil, Russia, India. Yeah, China, but, but you, you should include Indonesia as a second I and, and a host of other nations that, of course, are just, their economies are actually growing now um, for a mixture of actual Chinese investment, but also just generally time, but whatever. I, I think, you know, the past two years have been a steep reversal in China's economic fortune, fortunes domestically and internationally, uh, inter- internally, socially, and economically. That's what changed for your prospects so that there actually – are you saying there isn't this massive – No, I, I think my, my prospects for – you know, the prospects for U.S.-China cooperation – Oh, right, right, right. Tech. Sorry, yes. Ended when Putin right. invaded Ukraine, uh-huh. making it clear that China was on the side yeah. uh, of Russia. And then it became block. impossible – you know, We're Oceania. Even, They're Eurasia. Even, you know, say, hey, let's break a let's break a cost barrier in, mm-hmm. you know, rooftop solar in the U.S. or let's break a cost barrier in in anything. Um, you know, I if, thought if Solar City was going to fix that here. That yeah, was an well, early Elon yeah, project. Well, you know, the U.S. doesn't doesn't really stay committed to its. It doesn't really invest in its. Emerging no. industries does it. We we don't like. We to, do not we have like an actual national like economic invest. policy yeah, we, when it comes down consume. to it. So anyway, that that stopped, yeah. and then um, I've been the CFO for uh, a regenerative, a very large regenerative farm called Essex Farm up in uh, Lake Champlain. Okay. Um, which has been wonderful. It's a diversified mm-hmm. family farm. Um, very large, very exciting, very very incredibly delicious food, but. Um, the owners uh, of the farm, uh, after four years of my doing that, the owners of the farm are kind of pulling back now. And pulling they're not going to how? be doing, they, they don't want, they're not making a commitment to operate for all of 2023. So that's are the second of to my their, two projects that is, is it personal? this year. Is it personal or is it that things are not looking good for farming in general or regenerative? I think if you're a farmer, because I know that that term, based on articles I've read, is fraught oh, and, with and, all kinds and the, of the funny business. Would, you know, particularly Mark Kimball would would throw something at me if he knew I used the word regenerative farming in, mm. in conjunction with because uh, he dislikes the term. Um, farmers get exhausted. They've been doing it for 18 years. Certainly, things are changing really quickly. Costs are changing. Um, yeah. So it it really was just. The labor market is getting much more difficult. Um, and this is because, like, federal subsidies are for certain foods like corn, but it's not for farmers They were never really on that. I mean, yeah. they always had this diversified farm where they were not – they were, you know – I know. They don't want to just grow corn. So yeah. that's what I'm saying. Like, the, the federal food policy is to prop up non-sustainable 
agriculture well, well, the, the, last the, night. The capitalist consumption oriented economies to yes. try to squeeze all the value out of anything that's really useful, such yeah. as food, mm-hmm. education, child care, yes. you know, or investment. Anything that makes makes our nation stronger and the world a better place, you don't really want to get committed to. You kind of want to keep it cheap, right? Uh-huh. And really competitive. Every so, strength becomes you know, a weakness if, if you give it time. So food is, you know, food is food is monocrop, food is subsidized, food is subs as uh, a fertilizer ba- fertilizer based. So, so here you were putting I'm in the investment. That's completely and it's, different model. And it's not enough. Hmm. So that was two things that crashed. Because this was just one one family's farm, was it? It wasn't some large collective endeavor. There are always desires to make it a cooperatively owned or collectively owned farm. And part of the project of working with the finances of the farm was the financial literacy of the farmers and the financial recording and reporting and managerial systems. Which is So that people could make their own decisions. So it's quite a lot to take on. Oh, yes. Even if you want to start, that's why... When it comes to, uh, let's just say, anarchists or... But that wasn't or, why, that wasn't, it wasn't, it yeah. wasn't the pressures of trying to change the ownership structure that, that they never mounted to anything that was part of the, the reason the farm is not committed to next year. It's pretty much purely the decision of, you know, the guy in charge who's just, mm-hmm. just exhausted. So, yeah, well, burnout is a serious problem when it comes to any kind of project, whether, whether it's building socialism or just doing some Success, um, better finger on the edges. Kind of reminds me of they a story. They might come back. They might, they might do the yeah. first four months. I have an anecdote. Just reminds me of an anecdote from my last years in college where I had a friend, Angelica was her name, and she was really into building her own tiny home or purchasing one. And she was, I think she was going to purchase one. By tiny home, I mean like an actual build, like tiny house. And... Because this is when the tiny home thing was new back then. It was it was a little played out now, but um, I, I don't know, whatever. And she was dealing with uh, jerks where they were kind of stiffing her, or they were, they were uh, wagging her around, and, or they made they were like they were making verbal so commitments. Wait, wait, wait. These were like tiny house douchey bros. I didn't meet the people she was meeting with. I mean, I'm hearing it was hearing it secondhand through her, just how it wasn't working out. But like when it was, it was all talk. But uh, until the, you know, the talk was good until it got down to signing a contract. And then like, well, not because of burnout, but maybe it was a matter of burnout that they were building this house, but they didn't want to let go of it. They didn't want to sell it to her. Um, or maybe it was an older couple. It was the details are now very hazy, of course. Um, but I'm just saying, when it, it came emotional. to making a commitment, they they reneged on her. Uh, but I was also asking her about it because I was interested in her progress on that because um, it was kind of a new fad at the time, and, and I was trying to see if there was. I was curious if it there was like potential. It sounds like one of those Lifetime movies where the surrogate mother doesn't want to give up the child. <laughs> I think that there was a little bit of that, um, and total total tangent. But I was listening to like a cultural. Um, leftists doing cultural critique or, or actually critiquing how we do cultural critique where you focus on culture and consumerism and you miss the big picture of worker power and such or how the economy is actually fun. Like how does it run? Like I think of all the movies that I'm not interested in because it's like some personal issue where if they just had class consciousness or just more conscious of some type, 
there the problem either wouldn't be an issue or it would be resolvable. But usually by the end of a movie, like the, the, there's a character study or something, and it's just like, oh, they're so confused, and they're looking, they're trying to find themselves. But if they just have some more solidarity with other people, I don't think they would have this existential crisis or or maybe the movie's about um, domestic abuse or someone in a bad situation. And it's like, God, can't they just get more conscious or encounter somebody who's more conscious? And then, oh, my God, they they build a relationship with someone. Almost sometimes a movie is about that, building a relationship with someone who gets them out. Or, you know, and sometimes a movie is about, like, when those are the ones I'm interested in. Like, oh, they, they found that the problem was they needed to build a union or uh, or something like that. But how many, like, movies kind of end on a bittersweet note because nothing was – couldn't – it was the, – the the meaning of the movie was like, you know, this couldn't be resolved because human nature is so fickle. I, I do not like that. Uh, but anyway. I feel manipulated just hearing about it. About my – Those, those the my movies. critique of movies. <laughs> movies are, are really very manipulative. They, mm-hmm. They're – and I'm talking about artsy independent movies at the spectrum, not just uh, blockbusters. Uh, the blockbusters are their, their own can of worms, but let's say uh, I'm talking about like the character studies, the things. Because I was just listening to some guys ragging on like the top ten holiday movie list, you know, that people are coming out with. But anyway, so with our last quarter of the hour, I still need to put in a plug for the uh, yeah. the gallery. Okay, so you do have a gallery show. Um, uh, I, I have a gallery. It's called the Earthshot Project. And right, this, this is your gallery. And because it's because it's it's cave art, and and because mm-hmm. my the office the, the gallery the spot on uh, Hamilton Street mm-hmm. is kind of a low ceiling. It's really cozy. It's I, a basement. I've turned it into an art cave. It has it has brightly colored walls though, so it doesn't really feel like a cave. It feels it's more a bright, like a spa. It's an art cozy cave. Yeah, it's a nice cave. Mm-hmm. It's like a it's like a it's like a Shanbei cave. You have your um, reusable type of products as well. Um, was that a separate project you had before? or Because uh, I think I originally met you through um, Zero Waste Albany or something of that nature. Yeah, I'm kind of like a lifelong zero, you know, low-waste, low-carbon um, type. And... I started the Earthshot project as a five as a not for profit in twenty nineteen. So it's Earthshot. Earthshot, yes. Not shot. It's like the moonshot. Okay. But the Earthshot. Right. So I, I registered the Which name Earthshot is... Project, and then Prince Charles did took the same name about uh, like six months later. So oh. he's he's clearly he's the king now. So yes. even more famous. But uh, I just just want everybody to know I registered Earth Earthshot Project yeah before maybe I'm thinking of that. Overshoot. Overshoot. As, yeah, not as like Earthshot. Like how makes, we're overshooting planetary. Yes, yeah, that's what that's what Earthshot makes me think of. Um, but only because shot shoot same word. Yeah, it's it's essentially. Yes. A, a, a tea house, a gallery, mm-hmm. a, a spot to and a social space you would you would want to make available to any group so. that likes would need a meeting space or just a hangout space. What do you have any set hours, or is it by appointment only? At this point, or just give you a call. At this point, I, I think I'm open 12 to 7 on Saturdays mm-hmm. for the art cave. The art cave is going to be open this Saturday. Well, you know, that's uh, almost the same hours as Urban Aftermath. Well, that's because Urban Aftermath is on the same block. Yes. Very similar. And I visit both, yes. uh, 
kind of orientations. So yeah, it's the Hamilton Street, 12 to 7 Saturday. And What's the number, building number? Uh, I'm at 323. Okay. Urban Aftermath is at 295. Just, just block. having you list it out. And so there, there we are. And uh, yeah, it's about sort of a zero waste living, living, living more in a, in a more earth-centric uh, communal way. Just having a space to not be so isolated, to have some conversation, have some tea, you know, do a film screening with your friends, have some sort of meeting there. And uh, it's all zero waste. So we do have Did like you pantry get, options. You mentioned but uh, plastic, sorry, sorry. no disposable plastic with the uh, pantry options. You'll, you'll be drinking out of glass and, mm-hmm. and uh, aluminum and steel. It's all quite lovely. You mentioned a few months ago that you were looking to have a meetup group, have a farm to table meal. Is that, did that pan out? Yeah, I think since, since Essex Farm has, it would have been committed. from that farm. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, I did the farm-to-table lunch on Sundays for like three Sundays in a row. And okay. I went, okay, that was that experiment. That's usually, yeah, God, in my years of, um, five years post-college, I was doing tons of little experiments like that where meetings or what would be, whether it was me giving lectures of a type or trying to build something, I would basically give it three meetings and then, <laughs> okay, this isn't getting the interest getting enough interest from the people, at least from the pool of people that I'm pool, like I'm trying to draw from. Um, which yeah, three's a good test. Which are either um, post-occupy people or people who are at least uh, somewhat adjacent or people I encountered. You know. It sounds incredibly painful, especially because since I've spent so much... No, 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 listen to me, because I've spent so much of my life working with Chinese people, and Uh they're inherently collective, and they're inherently structural, and they inherently know how to run a meeting and do things as a group. And Americans are so individualistic and so resistant to having sort of group decision-making, and and, uh, it's it's just so painful for me every time I try to get involved in a movement in the United States, because I, I know it doesn't have to be this hard. I'm a little of both in that... What I mean, but what do I mean by both? I mean, I'm with you completely in how hard it is, but I know that there is a craving for group decision making, but people just do not know how. So there's a lot of education first. But I think what people maybe lack some patience in is you got to learn how to have a meeting before we can have a meeting. True. And that is. You know, it's like you need a pre-meeting or you need like two sets of meetings, one for training and the other. And it's like, I don't have the time for that because of, you know, my two jobs or, or whatever, or my one job and raising a family and what have you. Um, or I'm retired and my, my health doesn't allow it. I just don't have the energy. But, you know, with me and, and learning consensus, it was more self-study as much as it was practicing it in Zuccotti Park and also getting frustrated by how long everything took, but also just the decisions weren't satisfying um, for the most part. and But when I do run a meeting now, because of all this training and work, people love the meeting. They enjoy it. They say, oh, damn, that was a good meeting. We actually got things done. We got you know, made a decision, and it didn't take two hours. A lot of where the moralism and into, you know, even an anti-consumerist, and, and I use the phrase new age or lefty, where there's a lot of, I know better because I'm more evolved or something, which comes across in a lot of satire where even in an episode of Rick and Morty in the last season where post-scarcity society is created and there's a 
kind of a sense from the writers that this would be it's satisfying in some ways and solves all these like like these basic societal problems but then people would be unsatisfied with it somehow uh but also that a kind of a Taoist, i don't know i wouldn't call it Taoist things that selfishness and selflessness are two sides of the same coin how do you feel about that kind of I do not think that selfishness and selflessness are two sides of the same coin. I had that I thought do, when I was I in college do. and I was like thinking about philosophy um, and my, what my beliefs were, but I didn't, I didn't stick with that. I think that it is the goal of capitalism to turn us all into consumers. And the reason, one of the, one of the key and most profound reasons that it is so difficult to organize in the United States or to bring groups together and have groups that form and commit, um, and grow in the United States is because we have all been trained for generations to be consumers, which is to say to operate from a level of preference and to identify very strongly with what we prefer, what we like, to and to to think in terms of our preference as a symbol of our you know our status uh we don't think in terms of survival we think in terms of preference and so we don't even realize we're doing it i also think that it's very profound that we're trained to believe that great leaders are always individuals that there's this myth of sort of uh an individual being fully actualized and being able to do everything themselves. And there's a, a, a very strong sense of inadequacy that is bred into us when we, um, when we need others. All good points. But consider that it's also a capitalist value to deprive yourself of things like luxury and vacation. And it's actually like capitalists would also want a workforce that doesn't want to spend that much money and doesn't want to. Uh, as long as there's a consumer base somewhere else, let's say. But for, for say, for China, we're the consumer base. But um, capitalism can function with a bunch of people who don't know the difference between their feelings and their thoughts, between, between mm-hmm. you know, ration and emotion. And really, a more evolved society needs to be composed of individuals who can differentiate between their feelings mm-hmm. and between rational and, and, and uh, limitations mm-hmm. between sure. the right. unlimited world of how I feel about myself yes. and the very limited scientific world of what we have to work with here. Let's say it's the, uh, call that the interobjective or the intersubjective. Intersubjective being like our collective feelings or how like, you know, polling and interobjective being the sciences of connections, ecology, networks, not just what can one person observe, right? Well said. Thank you. Did not know that. Thank you. I I go deep, and uh, but I'm literally coming off of like a uh, a discussion that um, I was listening to about this um, a critique of sort of what you're, you're saying that you know a, a, our, our ideal post capitalist society will be one like or, or that that maybe there's a difference between saying um, being a capitalist consumer and being a citizen that gets the most out of you know, economic output, because like, you know, obviously it's not just about asking for more wage, higher wages, but also more vacation and, and that, and also what you mentioned, you know, that, and how about the commons? Yeah, of course. I, I think 
I think both economically and socially and developmentally, um, planetarily, humans need to start to place value in the strength of the commons, the common area, the common yes. goods, water, air, guard. But know, this does not choice. negate that we'd all actually all be getting more because capitalists or, you know, the system wouldn't be soaking it all up. Um, that we actually do get a lot more choice, especially in choice of action. That because you know, we don't we have a choice in whether we work or not or how much we work if we have a commons economy. So and we have shared resource, and so we are less isolated inherently. So this has been a great conversation. Thank you for coming on. We have the last few minutes, uh, so I just want to do an off the cuff. Uh, this has been the, the uh, what's left in Albany. I'm your host Dan Platt. You can reach me on Facebook at the Three Left Show. What's left in Albany? now has both names uh, since the old show isn't going away. Um, the archive of both shows can also be found at threelefts.news. See about changing the domain, but that is something that's very low on my list. So it's threelefts.news. That's the full archive of the Three Left Show, two-hour program of leftist theory and practice with 146 episodes. This is What's Left in Albany. The one-hour program where I just talk to people in Albany or just cover of how Albany works, try to form a socio-political theory of how things work in Albany, as well as uh, as some some uh, leftist practice like you know, find the map out the power, you know, how, map out the power in Albany. Is it all in real estate? You know, because when I look at the general stories day to day, it seems like all the activity is around. Developing downtown as a real estate hub as far as um, where the value is generated. Where is the capitalist value going to be generated in Albany? Well, it's not in the outer neighborhoods. That's kind of static. Uh, it's not in the bar scenes. That was attempted or developed as far as it could in the last 20, 30 years with uh, the, the events and the parties and whatever. Like how much more can we get college students to drink? So that, that hit a wall. Where are capitalists investing in Albany? It seems to be downtown, and that's, and that's also where, like, where is the state moving to incentivize said investment? In the last two years, and I, I will have such, I'm, I got there's a list of people I'm going to reach out to. One of them is like the uh, waterfront co op. They actually call themselves a cooperative, but it's a bunch of professionals who are lobbying, it seems successfully. They've got Hochul even to make a statement about, like, yes, open the waterfront for Albany, which is, I guess, a lot, quite a distance from where things used to be, where just getting the Livingston Avenue bridge renovated was like, uh, I was at a meeting and there was five different entities, or rather, no, the, what it was was like, they were saying, why is this taking so long? Why will it take so long? And he says, there's basically five large entities that all have their own ball, set of balls. And they all don't want to give way for each other. And they all have to be pleased. And the only person who can really force them to do this, which is renovate the bridge, is the governor. So the governor needs to be on board. But if the governor isn't personally on board, like coordinating it, which makes it no sense because you think about like, it's not just multiply the Livingston Avenue bridge to everything in New York. And it's like, everything has to be coordinated through the governor's office. And it's like, that's how things are. If anything centrally planned in, 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 in our state, it's like through the executive branch. And that's insane. It's a bit of a bottleneck. That is an understatement, but that is the right word to describe it. That is what I was looking for. Bottleneck. Um, so it's like, that is why everything takes 10 years at least. 
even for simple things, simple fixes. And it's why a lot of things don't get done as far as just like even lobbying the governor's office because like everything, everyone's waiting on the governor. It's like, well, I'm not going to do it until the governor says it's okay. Um, and something like that, stuff like that. Or, or like say, um, it's what stopped, uh, New York Health from going forward, really. Uh, even when the leadership were bought by health insurance or they were about to like basically flood everything because they were holding off until we were really close. But the excuse was, well, Como said he's not for it. Even when you think you're making progress with the Democratic Party, you elect more progressives, more people who are like, yes, single payer, or not to single payer, but the Medicare for all. And, and then they'll go like, well, you know, well, actually, another thing they were saying at the time actually wasn't just the payroll tax, but the point was we could self-fund it. Mm-hmm. They were like, no, no, we can only fund it if Medicare is like all in. But as soon as Trump was elected, it was like, well, that's in jeopardy. We can't do anything. We can't move. We can't assume that you know we need the Fed on board. We can't do it on the state level because the federal government holds the purse strings for Medicare or something, which is like, well, what's the point of having states then if we can't do the experimenting of like economically or otherwise? I, I, I think you, I think Albany is a place full of people who are afraid to lead and that even the politicians who have positions of leadership and public trust and power are still always looking somewhere else for their cues. Yes. My, my observation is we're 15 years behind on anything. And uh, even the when it comes... Inertia is very, very heavy here. Oh, yes. Um, even things like food trucks and little things like that. Okay. Have a good one, people. Hey.